Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Completion of 21ism's debut year. The world's unraveling faster. Tyrants keep pushing harder. So it's time we change up a gear. Welcome to 21ism.com, sound culture renaissance. We will still craft, curate and amplify Bitcoin-inspired creativity, but we've been having the same thoughts as many of you undoubtedly have. How do I have more impact? How do I bring more signal? This is why we're pivoting slightly from here. We have named this block Fuck Fiat, and who better to celebrate this with us than the Guy Fawkes of academia, Seyfedina Moose. If you're listening to this, he will need no introduction, but suffice to say that few people will have done more to proliferate truth and signal than him. Speaking to Seyfedine is everyone's mate and possibly the best host around, Daniel Prince of Once Bitten Podcast. Keep your eyes peeled for what is to come from us. Peace. Right, okay, here we are guys, we're with Seyfedine Amus, and we're going to be talking about the Fiat Standard today for the uh, the 21 ISM project. Safe is the featured writer in this month's block. Safe, great to see you, mate. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. I am great. How are you? And how are the kids? We are all well. We are all well. Thank you. And on holiday. And uh, yeah, kind of a bit of a mashed up. Uh, arrangement here and people will hear probably barking dogs in the background and, and church bells and all other manner of things but it's all part of the uh, the pleb life but right Lauren you, you're going to ask a question yeah uh, yeah so how can you write two books at the same time um, that's a good question um, well the, the the short answer is that you uh, just uh, Put the keyboard in front of you, and you start hitting the buttons, and you keep hitting the buttons until the books come out. <laughs> That's really all there is to it. I think it's um, you know when when inspiration strikes and you have an idea that you want to write, it's um, it's almost like your fingertips are itching. You just want to sit at the keyboard and you want to write it out. And so I. Um, I, I got this idea for uh, the principles of economics textbook after I finished the Bitcoin standard. And I also had all these ideas about things that I wanted to write about Bitcoin as a follow-up to the Bitcoin standard. And then when the idea came for um, you know the topic and the thesis of the book as, um, as it is, um, I just... Uh, you know, the, I, I started with the principles of economics first, and then I did fiat standard, and then fiat standard came out very quickly, um, and now I'm finishing up principles of economics. So it's um, it's really it's inspiration, and it strikes you, and uh, you just have to keep writing. And um, yeah, it comes a little bit at the uh, expense of everything else uh, in your life, but you know, everything has a cost. Good enough answer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any further questions? Uh, no. So yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go now because Samuel's gonna ask a lot of questions that well, isn't really interesting. Well, do you, do you think you might meet Safe one day? And if you were, where do you think that would likely be? Where 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 his um uh, probably where his uh, favorite um, I don't know. The, the, what don't a know. particular party maybe? Oh <laughs> yes. 100k party? Yes. <laughs> 
I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure kids are going to be invited to that one. Uh, <laughs> well, you asked Michael Saylor if kids were invited, didn't yeah. you? What did he say? He said, um, I think he said that. He did. He said yeah. you'd have to wear a little armband yeah, to say you can't be served alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've been over this with Saylor. That's good to know. <laughs> she, she calls him Uncle Chad, so I think they're on, they're on pretty good terms. Right. So Anyways, um, I'm going to go. Bye. Bye bye. Take care. See you. Okay. Well, my question was, why do you like football? Um, you know, that's a very good question. My mom tells me that uh, "ball" and Arabic "tabe" was the first word that I ever said. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's a very deep rooted reason. I could come up with different. Um, things in my life, but uh, that made me really like football. Perhaps one of them was that uh, in, um, but I guess it, it, it was earlier than that. But one of them was that I lived in Brazil for two years when I was a kid from the age of uh, six to eight. And at the age of seven, when we first moved to Brazil, um, my parents took me to the Maracanã, the world's biggest stadium at that time, and we watched a game. And I will never forget the moment when I got out of the elevator into the seating and then the elevator opened and I saw the whole uh, football pitch of the Maracanã and hundreds of thousands of people. It could fit something like 200,000 people at that time. And 200,000 people and their flags and their songs and you know, the stadium was just absolutely unforgettable. I will never forget that moment and I think uh, that got me hooked uh, for, for life. Okay. And, um, do, do you remember the first time you... Well, you've only been to one football match, haven't you? Yeah, wasn't it... Um, um, what was the team again? Um, <laughs> it's not as memorable as safe. <laughs> <laughs> South End on Sea. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember who they were playing. It Halifax was, or something like... like I, I think it was like... Tottenham against... No, no, mate. It was Southend-on-Sea against some other complete job team. Yeah. Was, was, I, clearly not that memorable because you don't remember <laughs> it. was... Uh, I was very young. Uh, yeah, you were like seven or eight, the same age as, uh, as Safe's talking about. Yeah. Okay, then I wasn't that young. Did you so who do you support? Um, no one yet. He's well, make you a Liverpool fan. Yeah, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had another question it was why do you support Liverpool um, my uncle when I was growing up my uncle was a Liverpool fan and he got me hooked on them and I started supporting them when they stopped winning so I went through 30 years <laughs> of just watching them fail year after year to win the league and it's almost an admirable level of self-delusion that I maintained to continue to um, it's astonishing, you know, by, by uh, my, my friends are really amazed at how I managed to convince myself every year that this is our year. And, uh, <laughs> um, well, finally it happened. Um, and then two years ago, or two seasons ago, we did finally win the league. And, um, and there was also the, you know, it wasn't all bad during those 30 years. There was also the European Cup final in 2005 in Istanbul, Liverpool against AC Milan. And actually, I was in that match. I went to that game as well and I watched it. Probably the best final in uh, history. So that was a lot of fun. Made the 30 years of pain worthwhile. Did they win? <laughs> yes, we won. Uh, it was 3-0 uh, 
they were three 0 down to AC Milan at halftime, and AC Milan at that time were one of the best teams in the world. They'd been in like four European Cup finals in a few years. They had some of the best defenders in world history. They had Maldini, Nesta. Cafu and uh, Yapstam in defense. They had an incredible team. They had Shevchenko, Crespo, Kaka, and they were leading 3-0. And then uh, Liverpool scored three goals in six minutes in the second half, and within they won on penalties. Check it out that, on YouTube. It's a memorable game. That's interesting. Yes. But um, my uncle and cousin are Liverpool fans. Uh-huh. So. And all your uncles, actually, are Liverpool fans, except one, mm. who's a delusional West Ham fan like myself. Mm. <laughs> well, my, my grand... Well, and granddad. Yeah, yeah, and granddad. He, like, he, he says West Ham keeps winning, and, like, do, can I trust him? Because they fail a lot. Like... <laughs> It's an emotional yes. ride, mate. Yes, they pretty much suck at this moment. <laughs> well, they're having a very good season, um, but hopefully we're going to burst their bubble uh, next week. They come up against Liverpool. You know, they're always uh, uh, blowing bubbles, and that's their song. <laughs> and I've sung that song countless times on the terraces. At, Sing uh, it right now. Oh, mate. No, no, no. <laughs> 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 Don't bring kids into interviews. <laughs> It'll get you some views. No, it won't. Yes, no, it, it won't. will. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make people get more Bitcoin. Do you, do you have any further questions for, for Dr. Sabatino Moose rather than putting me into singing football chanting songs? No, but you should sing it. <laughs> Later. <laughs> now. So no more questions? Nope. Okay. Well, I'm good to go because I have a club. Well, yeah, a club now. So, bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Cheers, Soph. Um, Cheers. I dare you to sing it still. I will sing it too later. <laughs> we'll call Granddad and he can see it. Can you close the door? Um, is, is football your only high-time high preference kind of uh, hobby or pastime? Um, I mean, you know, the things that I'm not comfortable talking about in public, perhaps. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess from the from the ones that you can mention in public on a family friendly podcast, and yes, <laughs> <laughs> good answer. So what were you? Um, what's interesting is like this this Brazil thing. What what were you doing in Brazil? What what took you to Brazil at, at such a young age? Uh, my father's a doctor, and uh, he was a surgeon, and he went to uh, specialize in plastic surgery in Brazil. And plastic surgery is like the uh, it's it's uh, or at least back then, I, I think maybe until today as well, it was like one of the world's leading centers for plastic surgery. So he went and did an. Uh, a residency for two years with one of the world's leading plastic surgeons and it was amazing i went to the maracana five times i watched the copa america final 1989 brazil versus argentina no that was the semi-final but i also watched the final against uruguay romario not maradona in that game i was there you can see it on youtube and um, i went to the carnaval the massive massive carnaval when i was like eight years old stayed up all night and uh, yeah, got screwed my sleep schedule for the rest of my life. <laughs> I bet, man. This 
And like we've we've had your brother in the uh, the chats before, right? So and he's a doctor as well. Uh, so yeah. are you kind of like um, the black sheep? Disappointment, <laughs> you know, went down the economic route um, instead of being pushed into, you know, becoming a doctor. Like, uh, yes. is there anybody else in your family as well, doctors? Yeah, my sister, um, but she's also not a doctor. Um, so yes, yeah, was uh, my brother at least uh, who made uh, my father happy. <laughs> Man. And where are you actually from originally? Uh, because I don't even know this. I'm not sure how many people do. I'm from uh, Palestine, from the West Bank. So originally from a town called Tulkarem. And then I grew up, well, um, for a while in Saudi Arabia and then uh, Brazil and then uh, back in Palestine where I finished high school. Then I did my undergraduate in Lebanon and then I did a year in London five years in New York, where I did my PhD, then went back to Lebanon, where I uh, was working. Right, anyway, I was just about to dive into the Fiat Standard. I've got a few uh, paragraphs here that I've highlighted. Um, one one little fun fact, you, you might, I don't know, did you ever do uh, Command F to find out how many times you used the word Fiat in the book? Yes. I'm uh, I'm digging up the file right now to see. <laughs> I was going to ask you to guess. <laughs> um, but it doesn't tell me how many times. It tells me this is, I don't know, this, I'm using not my main laptop now. Uh, so I don't know what kind of, uh, but it, yeah, it's been used on 317 pages of the book. And the whole book is 382 pages. And of course, it's been used more times. But if you give me a minute, I can look on my other computer. No, it's where okay. I'm sure. I've got the answer for you. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. How much is it? 906 times. 906 times. Wow, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I was reading it last night and I was thinking to myself, wait, I've got to do Command F here and, and figure it out. And I wondered whether you'd ever done it. Uh, but you, yeah, I mean, that, that word now must be completely uh, like um, just branded on your, your whole brain. Um, how long did, did you ever use the word fiat in your teachings? When, when did the, because I worked in foreign exchange for 18 years and I didn't even know what the word fiat meant and what fiat money was. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, no. It's not something that is is used in uh, normie land. I mean, I I taught economics at university. Oh, sorry, I lost you there. Yeah, that was a weird crash. I had a complete system crash there. Um, right, we're back. Okay. Uh, where did we get to? Excuse me. Um, if I'd used the word fiat before and I was saying, no, I don't, uh, right. Yes. Yep. And so then I was saying, I'm very glad that, you know, you look at, uh, Bitcoin exchanges or Bitcoin services and uh, they use the term fiat in a totally normal functional, uh, setting in a normal functional way, which I find really good because, um, we've, uh, forced them to seed the, uh, linguistic ground of um, the term money. It used to be, and in the textbooks, you know, they just use the word money to refer to government shitcoins. And uh, they've successfully demonetized gold, linguistically at least. So people think of money versus gold, and gold is no longer money. Um, gold is just
just the metal. And so in the book, you know, they'll have maybe a, a brief discussion of, in the textbooks, they'd have a brief discussion of uh, gold as money versus fiat money, perhaps only for half a page or whatever. But uh, throughout the book, throughout all of um, mainstream academia and mainstream media discussing money, the term money just refers to government shitcoins. And now we've forced them to uh, cede that territory. So now um, the term money refers more and more to uh, different types of money. And there's fiat money and there's digital currency, which I think is, is great. Yeah, man, that's, that is, it's, what, what a change, right? They're, they're never going to give this up. Uh, we're not going to, we're going to try to never give it up. Um, but I want to like, um, th this, this ties in nicely to the subtitle of your book. Uh, it, <laughs> so it's called the Fiat Standard, but then the, I love the, 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 um, the subtitle, Debt Slavery Alternative to Human Civilization. So do you want to explain to those listeners that <laughs> how you came up with this? Because it's very, very hard hitting. You, you, this isn't something that probably uh, just came as an epiphany. You, you probably played around with the, the wording many, many times. Explain how you got to that and the exact point that you're trying to make. Actually, it, um, it, it, it kind of did come as an epiphany. Um, when I first got the idea for writing the book, um, it was almost like a parody of the Bitcoin standard in a sense. And, you know, you look at the cover, it's exactly like the Bitcoin standards cover and the title, Fiat standard, Bitcoin standard. And then the subtitle of the Bitcoin standard is uh, the uh, decentralized alternative to central banking. And so I, in order to, you know, get started with the idea of writing the book, the, the kind of, you know, the, the toughest part of a project like this is getting started. And for me, the, um, uh, the, the 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 map that I used the the game plan for how to get started was to just um, mimic everything in the Bitcoin standard, and um, you know with the editing that's kind of gotten a little bit whittled down in the. Uh, in the first few chapters, but initially, um, it, it's almost like the scaffolding of building a building. But the, the initial scaffolding was just uh, writing a book exactly like the Bitcoin standard. Now, with time, you know, the structure and the, the content, um, you know, once we had the scaffolding up, then I moved more toward shaping it in a way that uh, makes it better and stronger and uh, uh, more coherent in its own right, so you don't get much of that, um, but, uh, but but I think it was, uh, you know, you obviously still see it in the cover and in the subtitle, and the subtitle just came to me quite, um, I, I don't remember when exactly, but it was initially when I first started working on the book, I designed a mock cover, which I did um, on my own computer with my terrible uh, graphic design skill, and I tweeted it out, and most people thought it was a joke at that time, and um, I was, I thought, you know, Bitcoin is the decentralized alternative to central banking. What is the fiat standard an alternative to in order to structure it like that? And it immediately occurred to me, yep, it's dead slavery and it's an alternative to human civilization. This is what this thing is doing. We had this beautiful thing called human civilization, which reached its pinnacle at the turn of the 20th century, at the end of the 19th century. And then we decided, um, you know, like, like a drunk driver to just take a detour and um, <laughs> go into a ditch, which was the 20th century and the fiat standard. And it's been uh, absolutely devastating for people and for humanity and for um, all kinds of different things. And I think uh, this initially was um, constructed, as I said, you know, to just try and um, 
uh, mimic the Bitcoin standard. But over time, I, it's, it, it shaped the book and it shaped my thinking. Or more accurately, I would say, the more that I wrote, the more that I just came to realize, yeah, this is actually an accurate uh, reflection of what this book is doing, um, because that's exactly what fiat is doing. It's, um, it's uh, once I really got this uh, key idea in the book, which is that in the fiat system, you mine fiat by getting into debt or by um, issuing debt, then you really begin to realize it is a debt, a universal debt slavery system. It's universal. Everybody's in debt. You know, it doesn't matter how rich you are, you're in debt. Um, the richer you are, the more debt you take on. The, the world's biggest borrowers are the world's richest people, you know. So um, it's, it's a system wherein it's, you know, just like gold had um, uh, incentivized mining gold and Bitcoin incentivized mining um, Bitcoin, uh, fiat incentivizes getting into debt and so everybody wants to get into debt and the more debt you can get into the more you win in the system and the consequences of that and, and that's kind of the function of um, well that's the main focus of the first part of the book uh, the first six chapters which get into this in detail and explain you know how fiat works and how the way that fiat works causes us to I'm sorry, causes us to have this um, universal debt system where everybody wants to get as big a negative balance as possible in this uh, system. And then in the second part, fiat life, it explains the implications of that. All right, so what happens if everybody's in debt and if uh, government has the ability to magically create value by fiat because debt is money? Well, then what happens is that you witness all kinds of important um, human institutions and human uh, products and markets disintegrate and fall apart and uh, um, the result is that uh, um, really it is the destruction of civilization that's that, that's the um, conclusion of the second part of the book which is that uh, the, the you know civilization is a term that just um, has lost a lot of its meaning in the last uh, few decades people don't really know what they mean when they say civilization but i think uh, if you listen to mises and the Austrian economists, they have a very clear idea of what civilization is in, in, in a clear definition in a functional uh, sense. Civilization is what happens when people are able to accumulate capital, increase their productivity, build a society um, on the basis of uh, you know, strangers being able to deal with one another, respect one another, and uh, trade with one another, improve each other's lives. The idea that you can a deal with a stranger and expect that that stranger is going to deal with you in a consensual way and they expect that you deal with them in a consensual way and you both benefit from this dealing and that you live in this extended order of people who are um, dealing with one another and helping one another and um, making each other's lives better uh, resulting in more and more capital accumulation and resulting in a process in which uh, each generation, each successive generation has a better living standard than the generation before. That's what civilization is. And fiat is, without exaggeration, destroying that and reversing that. You know, we, we're we all raising our time preference because our money can't hold value. This is a key concept in the book, you know, on time preference. 
So we are becoming more short-termist. We discount the future more, and that's reflected in all aspects of our decision-making. And then we see it happening in all kinds of um, industries. We see what happens with food where, um, you know, on the one hand, we have a higher time preference, so we're more likely to eat junk and not care about what happens in the long term. But also governments have an incentive to uh, feed us junk because junk is cheaper for them to um, – you know, if we're all eating junk, then the prices of junk are going to be, are not going to, uh, then inflation is not going to look as bad as if we were all trying to eat, you know, real uh, proof of work uh, meat, which is difficult to make cheaply. And um, we see it in the energy industry, which I think is an enormously important topic, which I don't think a lot of people uh, pay attention to. Um, but we see it in the 1970s. You know, the 1970s was the birth of this kind of hysteria around um, um, fossil fuels being a force of evil. And this is this hysteria, uh, this is, I think is going to be the most unpopular part of my book and I can't wait for, you know, the, 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 the screeching and the... Uh, <laughs> And, and, and the anger and the, uh, the outrage and all of the people that are going to just, you know, how dare you say something like this? I, I truly can't wait for all of that. Um, but most people just tend to take this for granted. Yeah, fossil fuels are bad and we need to get away from fossil fuels. And this insanity didn't really exist except in some marginal uh, crazy cults um, that are not part of society in any meaningful sense up until the 1970s. And then in the 1970s, as the price of oil and gas started to shoot up because of inflation, obviously, um, the answer was to blame all of that on uh, all kinds of other factors except inflation. And all of these factors lead us to one conclusion, which is that we need to reduce our consumption of those things and we need to replace them. And so there's been, there's been this fetish now for 50 years of needing to find an alternative to fossil fuels. And um, really, if you think about it realistically, it's just completely insane. It's absolutely insane. You know, fossil fuels are the reason we have our modern civilization. Fossil fuels are the reason that um, we can take surviving the winter for granted for most of us. It's the reason that we have all of the nice things that we have today. It's the reason we have computers and um, semiconductors and cars and airplanes and um, lighting at home and uh, cold and uh, running, cold and hot running water and uh, functional sewage systems and the reason that we have wastewater treatment, all of that stuff was uh, only made possible once we had command of these very high density uh, sources of energy that can give you a lot of power in a very small volume at a very short period of time. So. Uh, it's, you know, once you start understanding it, it's absolutely insane the fact that people are trying to find an alternative for it because the alternative to it is darkness, cold, misery, disease, and an early death. And yet, for the past 50 years, the fiat world has massively um, um, sought to vilify those things for reasons that I get into and discuss in the book. Primarily, it's because, you know, their prices go up and so governments are trying to get you to uh, use cheap alternatives, which is the same thing that we see with uh, with food, you know, the, the price of food goes up and so they want you to have the cheap alternatives. And so as a result, um, 
I mean, you know, when I first studied that stuff and I did my PhD on this nonsense and I, I did my PhD being a believer at some point that this is how the world should work and yeah, we do need alternatives. And then uh, the more you research and study this, you realize <laughs> the notion of wanting alternatives is just complete insanity. And um, initially, I used to think, all right, well, so the the you know the, the the consequence of this insanity and this hysteria around those uh, fossil fuels is going to be that a lot of hucksters like uh, Al Gore and Elon Musk are going to get really rich from um, selling these ridiculous stories about you know give me more money so I can build this uh, white elephant project that makes me rich and in five or ten years it's going to replace. Um, fossil fuel energy and of course in five to ten years they get really rich and they don't replace fossil fuel energy but you know um, that just opens the door for them to come up with another stupid project that makes them even richer and still doesn't replace fossil fuel energy this is how I used to think about this um, and why I didn't really find this very interesting and why I generally avoided trying to talk about the climate hysteria issue because it was just um, going to trigger a lot of uh, highly sensitive, highly um, emotional, easily manipulable people who watch a lot of TV and take their cue from what their TV tells them to start basically screeching and getting angry at you for hating um, polar bears and wanting uh, to boil the oceans. But um, over the last few years is when I started to realize, oh no, wait, this isn't just, you know, a stupid story that's going to make hucksters, a few hucksters rich. No, this is actually really, really destroying civilization. Like, we're witnessing now all over the world, the grid failures are becoming extremely more common everywhere. Um, you know, places that had 24-hour electricity back in the 1960s and 50s and 40s, where electricity was just completely reliable and people were able to live with reliable 24-hour electricity, you know, places like California and Texas, they're now witnessing blackouts all the time. And of course, if you, uh, if you, if you happen to subject your brain to the damage of watching TV, you'll read about all of these uh, stories of why, you know, the, the, the grid in California is failing because of um, evil um, fossil fuels and because of the climate crisis, it's causing all these uh, things to fail. But in reality, if you really look under the surface and you try and figure out what's going on, the reason it's failing is that they're trying to drag us back to the 15th century by making us reliable on wind and solar energy, which, you know, um, we can live on wind and solar energy, but it would entail living on them like we did in the 15th century. You know, we'd have a couple of windmills and you might be able to ground some of your uh, grains when the wind is blowing and uh, you get to tan and you get to grow your plants, um, but that's it, you know, and then you might have a candle here and there, but it's a life of drudgery. It's extremely expensive in every sense. It makes our productivity extremely, extremely low, and it would absolutely devastate our standard of living in a way that nobody uh, who is serious about this stuff has thought through in any meaningful sense. This is why all these... Um, hysterical people who are always going on about this, you know, nobody is stopping them from living their entire life on wind and solar and giving up fossil fuels. And yet they insist on continuously getting on their MacBook uh, and logging online and using all this machinery that requires enormous amounts of infrastructure to manufacture 
and for which we have absolutely no alternative. You know, it's, it's, you can't make a laptop without uh, oil. You know, all the semiconductors come from oil. There's no way around it. We don't have a way of making laptops out of uh, twigs and trees and um, branches and cardboard and recycled uh, paper. There absolutely isn't. And, you know, people should be free to go and do those things and show us about it, show us how it's done. But... It's and, and this is really why, what I call fiat thermodynamics in the book. You know, we have a world populated by idiots who want to take us back to uh, 14th century technology, who are taking us back to 14th century technology because they think they can have 21st century technology using <laughs> the without the without the essential components that go into making it it's absolutely insane it's like people who want lemonade without using lemon it's insane like you can't make lemonade without lemon and you can't make semiconductors and computers and um, 24 hour electricity without uh, reliable energy sources it's, uh, without petroleum. Well, you could make electricity with nuclear and hydroelectric, that's for sure, but you can't make nuclear without uh, and you can't make hydroelectric plants or nuclear plants without fossil fuels. You know, the, the industrial materials that go into all of these require fossil fuels and everything that you take for granted in your life requires this. And we're in a world where essentially governments are by fiat trying to dictate this reality where we're going to just get rid of the lemonade, lemons and we want to continue to have lemonade. And obviously, it's, it's, you know, lemonade isn't that important. We could live without lemonade, but this is far, far, far more important. And we see the results. You know, we see people were dying in Texas last year because of the blackouts that happened. And we see this happening all over the world. You know, in, in, in Germany, the price of electricity has gone up, I think, by double in the last 10, 20 years. Germany has some of the most expensive electricity in the world because they've gone completely batshit insane with trying to install all of these uh, renewable scam and energy sources and now you know can, they don't have reliable energy sources and their energy is extremely expensive and we're seeing it in England as well you know the stories you hear in winter of people unable to keep their houses warm so having to spend the entire day in the bus because the bus is warm or people who have to um go and spend the entire day in public libraries because their houses are too cold. And this winter, you know, what's coming, shaping up to be extremely, extremely, extremely devastating for a lot of people because gas prices and energy prices are going to be much, 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 much higher. And of course, your TV is not going to tell you that that is caused by all of the um, move toward all these fiat energy sources, you know, 14th century technology that we're... Uh, thinking that by fiat we can run the world on 14th century technology, but that's exactly what's driving it. And if we weren't obsessed with this insanity, if we weren't so obsessed with trying to get rid of all of these extremely reliable forms of energy because of inflation, really, because inflation makes their prices go up in a way that is uncomfortable for the inflationist governments, it's, 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 it's depressing to think of where we would be. It's depressing to think of how far further along our civilization would be if we hadn't wasted so much of our time and resources over the past 50 years in these idiotic scams of uh, completely unreliable and completely unproductive forms of energy that would not exist on the free market and only exist because of extensive government subsidies. And it's, it's, it's becoming tragic now in... Um, rich countries, but of course the real tragedy is in poor countries, which have been duped by the IMF and the World Bank and other criminal organizations into investing in all this uh, 
idiotic uh, infrastructure of solar panels and um, wind turbines and all these uh, forms of supposedly good and clean and reliable uh, and uh, renewable energy, which is far, far more expensive than uh, reliable uh, energy sources. You know, you could, it's really not that expensive to get a power plant that runs on gas or diesel or coal to produce 24-hour electricity. And there are many places in the world that don't have 24-hour electricity, and they're being um, shackled with debt to the World Bank and to the IMF and to international financial institutions in order to build solar plants which work occasionally and require constant cleaning. You know, you're putting massive solar plants in the desert. And of course, you know the dust makes them stop working. The it, uh, the clouds make them stop working. The rain makes them stop working. And so you can imagine how often they are dysfunctional. And so you need capacity. You need the entire capacity of your consumption at peak capacity. You need it to be provided by an alternative that is reliable, which is going to be coal. Um, gas or um, diesel. And so you're basically building two power plants when you could just run one, you know, just build one fossil fuel power plants and then it'll be able to offer you all the energy that you need at all times at peak capacity. So all this stuff is enormously wasteful. And you know, the cost of it is devastating <clears throat> for people in poor countries. And it's also devastating um, because in reality, you know, I think the the real energy challenge is to move for the, the you know where we should have really been spending our resources and um, over the last fifty years is a people who don't have power plants to have power plants so that everyone in the world would have twenty four hour electricity and I think this is something that is technically extremely feasible and economically extremely affordable it should be something that's very easy to do given all the amount of money that was wasted on idiotic solar and wind uh, boondoggles to make hucksters like Al Gore rich, you could have made the entire planet have 24-hour electricity. And the second thing is upgrading from coal, which is, uh, you know, it does have polluting, um, it, it does have pollution problems. It does uh, make, um, you know, it does make the air, the air quality worse for people around it. Upgrading from coal to natural gas, that's where the last 50 years should have been, the natural gas and nuclear. So instead of advancing to world of war, a world in which everyone is running on 20, everyone has 24 hour reliable electricity and the majority of the world is upgraded to natural gas and coal, uh, sorry, natural gas and um, nuclear. Instead, we are stuck in a world where lots of people, an increasing number of people, probably a majority of the world at this point, don't have 24-hour electricity. And um, many of those who do are still stuck breathing dirty coal. So yeah, it is the opposite of civilization. Complete opposite. Yeah, I mean, an epic rant. And i got to say, you know, thanks to you being exposed to you for the last uh, however long it is you've been running your courses and your podcast, especially, you know, having Alex Epstein on a couple of times, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And um, the big one for me as well was Patrick Moore. Uh, you know, he, he came on. That was a great, great episode. <clears throat> and I think for people listening, it's very, you know, there's a blurred line, right? They're, they're, people are just so easy, easily led into thinking, oh, he's a climate change denier, which is not the case at all. I mean, how could anybody deny the climate changes, right? The difference between what people like yourself and Alex and Patrick do is you look at, you know, like 
Way out. You zoom way, way out. In, in Patrick's book, he has the, um, I think he goes back 60,000 years or something, like graphs of uh, the levels of carbon dioxide uh, that are, they've been way, way higher than they are now. And they were down to 150 parts per million just around the time of the Industrial Revolution, which is critically uh, dangerous for our planet to be that low. That's at that point, everything starts just dying. Right, all plants and life just starts dying. Um, but the the alarmists will take that point, the industrial revolution, just from that point, no earlier, to show you like how it's hockey sticked and how we're going to all die and burn in hell. And you know, it's it's crazy. So like this idea of being a climate change denier is nonsense. It's a climate change realist, and you know, actually looking for. You know, what is the answer? Because we know it's not solar or, or wind, maybe on a really small scale. And if you just want to live, um, you know, self-sufficient um, on your acres of land, maybe you could work that, but not for a town, not for a city of any size. Uh, it's been a really interesting um, journey to follow. And, um, you know, thanks to you and your work, you're, you're helping a, a lot of us understand where the real work needs to be done. And this is what's exciting about fiat, uh, excuse me, Bitcoin mining. And, uh, and how that's um, stepping into kind of like uh, managed grids or make these towering windmills into to something more useful by capturing that energy and mining for the Bitcoin, which is an amazing space to be in. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah, and I think this is, uh, you know, this is why the book, um, I think, um, it is, after all, a Bitcoin book because it does talk about fiat, but it really is talking about fiat from the context of the rise of Bitcoin. And I get into the topic of energy very extensively precisely because it is the only way that you can understand the truly, truly momentous and revolutionary and almost messianic potential of Bitcoin mining in that it's going to, whether you believe in it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe that we are going through a, a, a once in a millennium climate crisis that is man-made or you don't believe that Bitcoin doesn't care and Bitcoin's going to fix this. Bitcoin, you know, while all these governments are out there uh, taxing and destroying reliable energy sources that people need in order to survive because of their um, and really misguided hysteria that um, that the weather today is just extremely different from what it has been historically and that this is all unprecedented and that this is all caused by us. Um, the reality is Bitcoin is just out there and it's financing people investing in uh, reliable, low-cost energy. And I, I found that somebody made an excellent tweet just yesterday, I think, or a couple of days ago on Twitter, which I think was really, really an excellent way of putting it, which is he said, um, Bitcoin mining is going to do to energy what streaming services have done to bandwidth. And I think this is an excellent, excellent way of understanding it. Because the fiat brain, the anti-capitalist mentality is that, oh no, this thing is consuming energy, it's going to finish all of our energy and we're all going to not have energy. But of course, the capitalist mentality, the people who understand how the world actually works, who understand how economic production happens, realizes that actually, if you're going to increase the consumption of something, if you're going to um, find a productive demand for something, you're not going to run out of it. All that you're going to do is that you're going to massively incentivize people to produce a lot more of it. And 
Bitcoin is a godsend in this regard because it's out there giving everybody in the world an incentive to find a way to make cheap energy and find a way to make energy at a low cost that's reliable, that's there running 24-7 so that you can mine with it. And, you know, the knock-on effect of this is going to be that we are going to have a lot of energy. And I think it's it's going to decentralized energy uh, production, uh, which, you know, it's... Um, people can take it, I think, a little too overboard in terms of the decentralization being good. Energy is one of the things where decentralization might not be such a good thing because there are enormous economies of scale to uh, running large power plants, which really is why the grid is such a powerful thing and why having a grid is so enormously powerful and why I think, you know, a lot of the kind of, um, you know, we want to be self-sufficient people, a lot of these projects end up failing ultimately because they're not connected to a grid. Even, you know, first of all, you need a very high power and low cost. And so you must use a generator that generates power reliably. You can't do it with nuclear on your own individually. So that means you have to have um, hydrocarbon energy. But running a small plant for 10 houses or 20 houses or 50 houses is always going to be extremely far more expensive than running um, a grid with million houses. Because when you run it with a million houses, there are just so many economies of scale in the combustion of the fuel that makes it so much more efficient. Uh, so, but, you know, the decentralization is kind of necessary at this point because it's going to make the world, um, you know, the, the alternative is that we are stuck in the dark and cold. So we're going to have these... Um, smaller scale grids pop up all over the world as the centralized grids of the government continue to fail as they try and um, implement 13th century technology. Yeah, all right, let's put a pin in the energy because I want to move back into uh, another section of the book which um, you, you, you try to be fair to fiat, uh, which, is, which is great. Um, and I love the, uh, there's a little subsection, what is fiat good for? Uh, and you list them, um, sailability across space, gold spatial sailability, fiat spatial sailability, and then the beauty, the cherry on the cake, which is classic safe, <laughs> bank profitability. <laughs> and I'm going to read you the, the sentence, which uh, I love. Uh, again, what is fiat good for? Bank profitability. This system is spectacularly profitable for banks since it allows them to keep their money in one place while lending in another location. The fiat version of a Bitcoin double spend transaction. Over to you, Safe. You have <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, um, what's been driving the system, yeah, so the, there's the banks. I mean, it's been great for banks and it's great for governments. Uh, to try and be fair about it is to realize, yeah, it is good for one other thing, which is that it moves value across space quite quickly. It definitely is better than gold in that regard. And, you know, the book begins with um, examining the historical context of how fiat came about during World War One and how the Bank of England, you know, why they went off gold and the cost of moving gold around for the Bank of England at that time. They were moving a lot of their gold to the U.S. because, you know, they confiscated gold from the people of the, um, from the British people, which is something that you don't hear about a lot, but they took, up, they took away all, most of the gold from the British people and they sent it to America in order to finance the war. And, you know, before that, of course, also they had tried to raise money for the war by issuing bonds 
And then the British people were too smart to buy their stupid war bonds, and so they didn't. And then the Bank of England went and financed uh, the buying of the bonds by having two of the bank's staff members buy the bonds in their own name. And then they got their uh, you know, um, shitcoin promotion rag, which is the Financial Times, still a shitcoin publication after all these years. They got them to write an article about how the bond issue was uh, oversubscribed and successful. And um, then, of course, that meant that they were lacking uh, in uh, Bitcoin. The, the, sorry, they were lacking in gold. They didn't have enough gold. And in order to, um, you know, to, uh, and they needed credit from the Americans. So they took the people's gold. They sent it to the U.S. And you know, some of that gold sank in the Atlantic. And the cost of running it, the cost of sending it, was closer to about uh, half a percent. To one percent or something like that of the gold. So basically, sending a gold bar across the Atlantic a hundred times costs the price of a gold bar, and that's just um, that's just becoming increasingly inefficient in a world that um, is extremely interconnected. You know, you had telegrams at that point, and the world was trading all over, um, trading with one another, and things were being sent back and forth <laughs> all across the planet. So it was extremely ineffective to. Um, to continue to run on gold. So to be fair to fiat, you know, it does have that going for it. If you just uh, give up on using gold as money and you use government uh, loyalty tokens as money, then all you have to do is just be on the right side of your government and you can make a payment across the world in a few days. Huge improvement over gold and at a much lower cost. But then, yeah, the, the other thing is that it's great for bank profitability. Um, ultimately, Banks no longer have to be um, responsible. They can just uh, issue money, and when things go badly, they get the central bank to bail them out. That's really the killer app of fiat. And that's kind of, you know, when you, when you talk to fiat people, they'll tell you, oh, well, you know, um, you can't have a money monetary system built on something like Bitcoin and gold, because then when the banks fail, how can the government bail them out? And, of course, if you understand logic uh, and you don't watch TV, you realize that that's exactly the point. If banks fail, there's nobody who can bail them out. That's it. We break the mold for the money printer, and we, we break the mold for the money, basically. If there's no more money printer, you can't bail them out. And so you better learn to be responsible. You, as a bank, better learn to not fail. And you, as a depositor, and as a lender, and as a borrower, better learn to not deal with banks that are not responsible. And that's not something that government can fix for you in a world of grown-ups and adults in which everybody needs to take responsibility, in which we don't have an undo button, in which we don't have a, a, a bailout button. And that's, you know, for fiat people, they think of that as being, you know, a, a, a failing of hard money, but it is the entire point of hard money to teach the world responsibility. And that's, you know, that's the op exact opposite of what fiat does, which is to teach the world irresponsibility and to teach the world uh, self-indulgence and to teach the world to you know, try and make as many mistakes as you can because every time you make a mistake, you will get bailed out. And we see this you know, a century later. We see how this has been taken to its complete um, reductio ad absurdum in the current uh, global economic system in which basically it's, 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 it's almost illegal for a bank to <laughs> go bankrupt. You know, there, there, there's nothing you can do as a bank today that would uh, ruin your business. You know, Deutsche Bank, 
I mean, there's pretty convincing evidence that Deutsche Bank has been taken over by criminal cartel at this point, and people have been saying this for quite a few years, and yet they continue to get um, bailed out endlessly and repeatedly by um, uh, the central bank. And it's just always going to be this, because, of course, when you're giving these people all of these... when you're giving all these people all of this money, they are going to use some of it in order to make sure that the people in charge are friendly to them to keep them to keep giving them more and more money. So this thing has been um, completely hijacked now to the point where um, society essentially exists in order to um, prop up the financial overlords that run these financial systems. It's it's um, it sounds like it's an evil conspiracy, but it's really just uh, engineering. Really, if you have a monetary system that says. Don't worry, banks. We're always there for you with a printer that will get you out of trouble because banks getting into trouble is an extremely bad thing and we don't want to see it happen. You're going to get it. You're going to end up with this inevitable end point. We're at a point now where central banks basically um, bail everybody out and the governments are able to own everything and um, banks are able to own governments and it's just one big giant um, corrupt well, you can't even call it corrupt. I don't think it's corrupt because corrupt implies it's been corrupted to do something it wasn't supposed to do. But this is not corrupt. This is perfectly – this is functioning exactly as it's supposed to do. You're, uh, you just have a, a, a monetary system that is um, uh, optimized for, uh, f- for financial institutions to profit. That's why so many people all over the world want to work in banking. That's why it's the one industry that doesn't get more efficient. It just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger and people are just you know they're just shuffling these financial instruments between one another and getting paid to do it for no discernible benefit to anybody else yeah that was my life (laughs) not anymore no (laughs) and uh, a little anecdotal story for you the um, the currency pair uh, sterling to US dollar still to this day is called cable because that was the first currency pair that was ever um, brokered or um, traded across the, the cable that was laid between the two countries under the ocean. So even today, they still call it cable on the trading floors. Uh, what the fuck happened in 1914? <laughs> you know, I bought the domain, what the fuck happened, WTF happened in 1914.com, and I haven't built it out. I should do it. But yeah, a lot of things happened in 1914. As I was saying earlier, you know, in England, uh, they confiscated the, the uh, gold from the people of England. And this is amazing. You never hear about this anywhere. Um, uh, but uh, and uh, going back to the… This is how they, they did it. I'm sorry? This was the post office boondoggle. Yes. So, so exactly what this is like the sixty one oh three equivalent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so and it's a kind of the uh, I call it the fiat white paper. And again, remember, you know, I begin the Bitcoin standard with the uh, quote from uh, the uh, email uh, that Satoshi Nakamoto sent to the cryptography mailing list announcing Bitcoin. I've been working on peer to peer blah blah blah. 
And, um, you know, again, I was building the fiat standard to look exactly like the standard. I thought, you know, what would be the equivalent of that? So I started to look at what the Bank of England did in 1914. And it's amazing what I found. Well, of course, what's even more amazing is the fact that nobody mentions this. And all of this information was only declassified in 2017 and 2019. Two pieces of very, very, very important information, which got declassified in 2017 and 2019. And you would think, you know, that should call for a rewriting of the majority of the history books that have covered that period because this is this is one of the most important facts of the first world war but um, nobody likes to talk about it so the first is a book by a guy called john osborne who was the personal secretary of uh, montagu norman who was the uh, chief of the bank of england in the 1920s and he asked uh, osborne to write a history of the bank during world war one and this was you know after world war one ended they wanted to figure out what the hell we did during World War One because the people in charge were just being extremely creative with the things that they did. And um, so as I was saying earlier, there was the uh, bond issue, which didn't work, and then they got the Financial Times to say that it was fine. Um, and then, uh, so they were basically short gold. And at that time, you know, gold was redeemable and at a rate of one pound, uh, at a rate of one ounce of gold at uh, four pounds and 25 cents, or 35, I think, um, whatever, but it was redeemable. So if you went to a bank or a post office, you could give them your British pounds and they'd give you uh, gold ounces in exchange. And then in 1915, you know, after they'd made those uh, bonds, the uh, Bank of England announces, you know, because now there is a war and uh, they appeal to the patriotic duty. This was really kind of the, the white paper for fiat. Um, they announced that from now on, post offices and banks should only make payment in uh, paper money and they should uh, take gold from people. And so if you had gold, you should pay all your bills with, to the bank and to the post office with the gold. And um, if, you, if they need to pay you, then you should accept their uh, paper. And of course, you know, that's just... Uh, that's really going off the gold standard. And people like to say that actually the, we went off the gold standard in 1971. No, the world went off the gold standard in 1914. That's when it really happened because that's when gold stopped being redeemable for, uh, uh, I mean, fiat stopped being redeemable for gold. Paper stopped being redeemable for gold. That's when we were no longer on the fiat standard. So um, the treasure, what they instructed was first, uh, the public generally are earnestly requested in the national interest to cooperate with the treasury in this policy by one, paying in gold to the post office and to the banks, two, asking for payment of checks in notes rather than in gold, three, using notes rather than gold for payment of wages and cash disbursements generally. So go off gold and use our shitcoin. And the only reason you would want to do that, of course, is that you have a lot more shitcoin out there than you have gold backing it. And then the other thing they did was they collected all that gold and they shipped it to uh, the US, uh, to American banks, which financed the British war effort. So um, really looking back at World War I, I think is enormously important. And I said this in, in my first book and it was one of those things that got a lot of people's knickers in a twist because um, it 
uh, <laughs> it's very hard to argue about it. And it flies against what you're taught at your um, school and university. Why was Britain even in World War One? Why do they even care about um, Austria and Serbia? Why did anybody else enter into this? But all over the world, you know, whether it was the Russians or the um, well, maybe not the Russians so much at that point, but like all these other European powers, they could get into the war because they could suspend redeemability and they could basically go on a fiat standard. And the result of that was just this massively destructive war, which arguably hasn't ended. I mean, everything that we see around us in the world today is just the continuation of World War One, And there was no good reason for it. People generally are brainwashed by propaganda to thinking, you know, um, they kind of project the uh, Second World War on World War one. So yeah, with the Second World War, yes, there was Hitler and things were bad. And um, you could make a much better argument for why the US and Britain had to go into World War II than you can for World War One. But for World War One, you know, it was just a fight in Central Europe that the US and, and, and Britain had no reason uh, to enter. Um, and um, you know, the best evidence for that is the fact that the British people did not buy the stupid bonds, which is something that was only uncovered in 2019. So the first, the study of John Osborne was only uncovered in 2017. And then in 2019, we found out about the bond issue, which wasn't an Osborne study, when uh, people were digging around in the Bank of England's basement, and uh, this was released. And the Financial Times, thankfully, you know, issued a correction 103 years later, saying, we reported that the uh, bonds were oversubscribed, but in fact... Uh, they weren't. Uh, we were victims of a scam by the Bank of England. Um, so this, I think, is extremely fascinating. The first world war was when fiat was born, and it was born to cover up the default. The Bank of England was bankrupt. And in order to cover up its default, we've been living in a century where we've basically destroyed human civilization to try and keep this uh, scam going and to try and prevent the Bank of England from just declaring its default and bankruptcy. It's mad, mate. It's mad. <laughs> you know, like we're taught in the UK, we're taught like World War One. Uh, you know, is the yeah kicked off in uh, in Sarajevo, the assassination of uh, uh, Ferdinand, um, a royal spat between you know uh, brothers and cousins, um, and entente cordiale. Uh, it's all kind of a bit hazy, but what? <laughs> It's all down to money. Yeah. And then, of course, that breeds World War II because of, uh, you know, the uh, the hardships and everything that, um, that Hitler endured. And, you know, look at what uh, gets created out of, out of this mess. Um, yeah, and just the, the printers go wild everywhere. Everywhere in the world is now running on a uh, fiat printer and everywhere in the world is basically, um, you know, whoever gets into power has this magic money printer. And then that's why you get all these crazies all over the world, all these totalitarian regimes that were mass murderers. I'm, and this is another one of the um, hate facts that got people's knickers in a twist from the Bitcoin standard, which is we never had genocidal maniacs do anything close to what they did with um, uh, go on the gold standard. You know, you think about uh, all of the crazies of the 20th century, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, you know, you name it. 
they all ran on fiat for very good reason. It's very hard to use uh, gold and hard money. You know, if you have gold and hard money, you prefer to keep it. Uh, you're not going to go use it for something as stupid as mass murder. Um, but if you can use other people's money, then mass murder suddenly becomes much more profitable. And Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin absolutely fixes it, and uh, the haters can hate all they want, and they can cry harder as much as they want, but Bitcoin will fix this. <laughs> Certainly will. All right, last last point, and then uh, we better wrap it up, because I've just seen we've been going for about an hour. Do you, do you have uh, a little bit more time? Sure, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, we we started the, the conversation with my kids. Um, you have your own family. Uh, Bitcoin is around the world. I love this this idea that uh, the people you know younger than us haven't even thought about getting married yet are already thinking about kids because they're already bitcoiners and this is they're already planning for the future and you've got a really nice um point that you make in the book here which uh, i i will read it again and then we can uh, we can get into it um you talk about fiat family uh starting a family is a low time preference decision that requires the individual to highly value the future and sacrifice for it Then you go on, and this is very hard-hitting. The ability of the state to provide undermines the individual's incentive to sacrifice to start a family. As education, childcare, healthcare, and retirement become the responsibility of the state, the need for a family decreases, and the sacrifices required for it, fiat life, becomes less compelling. All the bonds of family will weaken when the state appropriates the power of provision. Mate, drop the mic. That that's that is just so damn true. And it's exactly why we're in such a I mean, look at WTF happened in 1971, right? All you've got to see is the divorce rates. Uh, and women being aggressively pushed into the workplace. Um, you know, schools now, here in France, for example, the age of three they take kids. Um, into the state education system. That's the year, the year the child turns three. So, and they run January to December, right? So if your kid is um, turning three in December, they start in January. So they're just two. And they're not potty trained, nothing. But then they're off to maternal in the French, you know, state education system. It's a full-on attack on families. So anyway, I'll, I'll pass it to you because um, it's hard-hitting, hard-hitting paragraph and, and something we definitely need to explore. Yeah, I think you know, um, time preference is just such a powerful concept. And um, when I wrote about it in the Bitcoin Standard, I hinted at some of this and I spoke about it, and um, but I didn't get into these aspects of it um, in much detail. Um, I did have that. Um, uh, Uh, you know that little aside of uh, Keynes and looking at his uh, conception of the role of children in society as sex toys and slaves, um, and, and and how that really um, very accurately reflects the uh, Keynesian perspective on life. But I think in this book, I, I went into it in more detail because, you know, this is a book about fiat life. And so I looked into how that happens. And I think that it's it's very true. You know, the uh, before fiat came about, building a family was not a choice that most people had uh, to think about as if it was an option. You know, you had to build a family. You had to make your own children. You had to care for them and spend your life taking care of them. 
because that was the only way that you would have somebody to care for you in your old age. At the end of the day, there's going to come a point in which you're going to be old and unable to care for yourself. And if you had invested in a family, if you have children and grandchildren, then in your old age, you'll have these people around you grateful to you for everything you've done for them, uh, taking care of you, loving you, um, looking after you, helping clean up your mess behind you, and you can't clean up your own mess for you. And so this is why, you know, all cultures, all civilizations uh, teach people to invest in families. And it's uh, it's one of those things that we just, uh, you know, we take for granted. Um, but uh, if you start thinking about the economics of it, like everything that is... Uh, um, that is an institution that survives, there are economic reasons for its survival. And fiat directly undermines that because A, oh, again, it's, it's, a twofold, um, it's a twofold hit that fiat does. Just like with food and energy, you know, it, it makes the thing more expensive and takes away your ability to provide it for yourself. And then on the other hand, it gives the government the ability to provide it for you. And so it takes away your ability to um, live a decent life where you can eat good food, have decent access to good energy sources. And similarly with family, it takes away your ability to save for the future. So it takes away your ability to provide for your family and to provide for your future self. And it gives that to the government, which now has a magical printer that allows it to provide for you. And therefore, it can command you and it can become basically the substitute for the, your family. And so the, 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 the need for building a family, and you, and you see this um, and you hear people saying this um, quite often, which is, well, why would I want to get married and you know settle down with one person who's going to be boring when I could just uh, spend all of my youth um, enjoying a variety of uh, people? And then when I get old, government will just take care of me. And then a lot of people think like that. And um, I think, you know, I've, I've, I once uh, pissed someone off by telling them, you know, uh, it's going to really suck when you realize that, uh, you know, you, um, the, the welfare state is going to run out of money um, when you're too old to build a family, but, uh, uh, you know, too young to... Uh, I mean, it's going to run out at a point where it's not going to be able to provide for you in your old age, and it's going to be too late for you to start your own family. So, uh, you know, you spend, uh, I think a lot of people are going to witness this um, because, you know, if, uh, I, I doubt that this kind of welfare state is going to survive forever. And in fact, we already see it now. You know, if, uh, if you have entitlements from the government, they're going to get massively devalued. You, people see it in terms of, oh, well, you know, services are becoming more expensive and, um, Healthcare is being um, degrading in its quality and waiting lists on the NHS are too long. But that's just a symptom of the fact that, um, you know, that it's a scam. You were told to provide for this stuff, but it was a Ponzi where, you you know, your money wasn't being saved for you. Your money was being uh, spent on people before you, older people than you. And then when you grow up, you know, uh, you're going to have to count on younger people. But if you're not having younger people and most people aren't having younger people because they're counting on the government to pay for them, well, then, you know, where do you get young people from? That's just not going to work out for most people, I think. Um, so, um, um, what was the point that I was trying to get at? Uh, I kind of lost me there. Probably the, the, the point that, you know, it, the state having all of this power over everyone, essentially, 
is robbing them from the ability. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so, the, yeah, the other and the other thing here is that even uh, forgetting the financial mm-hmm. aspect of it, even if you do manage to have the state provide for you. What people realize in their old age, and uh, you know, this is um, something you start understanding when you um, listen to older people or when you look at studies that talk to older people, you know, what regrets they have and what they would have done different. For the vast majority of people, it turns out that you know, um, financial security is an afterthought almost next to um, familial security. And so uh, most people on their deathbed, they wish they'd spent more time with their kids. They wish they'd had more kids. They wish they had kids. These are the kind of things that people uh, regret the most and wish for the most. So the government can't replace that. So even if it does successfully provide for you financially in your old age, it can't hug you on your deathbed. It can't, um, uh, you know, it, it, it can't care for you. It can't provide you a lifetime partner that will love you back uh, for you uh, in your old age. And this is, you know, uh, fiat doesn't fix this. Fiat doesn't replace human programming. We've we've all descended from. Um, humans who have done this and felt like this for millions of years and who have needed companionship and partnership and families, well, maybe thousands, maybe not millions, um, who knows. But uh, that's, that's kind of ingrained in us. It's, it's, it's part of our instinct to want those things. And uh, fiat distorts that by making us more and more high time preference and discounts it. And then we end up with a lot of older people uh, living in a lot of regret, unfortunately. Yeah, it's um it's a bit of pill to swallow <clears throat> to swallow. Um and something again, I know it's uh we keep saying it, but Bitcoin does fix this. Like this 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 truly, truly does. This one is something people can it's, this isn't an abstract thought. Like savings technology, if you look at Bitcoin as the ability now to save for the future, it fixes all of that. And you can plan for the future and you can provide for your future generations. Very much so. All right. Well, I don't know if you um, medicine, fiat medicine. I, you, I, you've 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 spoken to to us about this before on your on your um, seminars and uh, the meetings we have. And- uh, I think uh, that's 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 too big of a topic to get into right now. I, I need was to run. Say, yeah, it's a whole other book. You said so. We look forward to that one. <laughs> We'll see. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I wanted to end it on the usual question. Uh, if you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? But before you answer, do you remember your original answer to this when you were on the One Spitting Podcast before? I do. As a matter of fact, I said Muhammad Salah, right? No, you didn't. You said you were stuck between Messi or Ronaldo. And then I thought Muhammad Salah, no? Didn't I? No. Well, the Salah answer is... is new. He's, he's, he's new on your radar, but I know you, you, you have a little bit of a plan, obviously. <laughs> yes, I do, as a matter of fact, because... Uh, so, you, uh, 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 Stefan de Vrij, the Dutch international defender and defender of Inter Milan, has... Um, he's been following me on Twitter, and we've been chatting, we've become friends. I've sent him my book, he sent me his signed shirt, and I also sent him a signed... Uh, Book, a bunch of books to give to uh, Virgil van Dijk and Ryan Babel and Frankie de Jong and uh, Georgina Wijnaldum 
And I'm also sending him now, I just sent it yesterday actually, I sent him a copy of my book in Arabic to give to Virgil van Dijk, to give to Muhammad Salah. So hopefully that will uh, work. You're doing Satoshi's work, so that's amazing. <laughs> that is truly amazing. And I would love to see the, the difference it makes on the players once they start adopting Bitcoin and, and realizing uh, its potential and the change that would have over their mind, the change it would have over the way they they eat, they train, uh, you know, how often they get transferred. I think it could just completely change the whole landscape of uh, professional athletes. I hope so. Yeah, I think there's, uh, and, and I think just the uh, the way that they manage their finances. I think if if they can change that, I think um, if, if it frees them from having to be reliant on a million different investment advisors and agents in order to be able to just manage their money, I think it's going to be uh, uh, enormously beneficial for them. Mate, it's been uh, it's been great to do this. Thank you so much. Uh, big shout out to Twenty Oneism for uh, for inviting you on to be the featured writer. I uh, can't wait to get my hands on the actual book. I have been reading it through the PDF and the emails you've been sending out, but there's nothing better than actually having the book in my hands. So looking forward to that. And now when will Principles be uh, released? We've got Fiat Standard coming out imminently. Um, what, what about Principles of Economics? When are we looking forward to that? Early 2022. I've still got uh, four chapters to finish um, in the book, three or four chapters. I'm not sure how long they're going to be. I might make them into four chapters or three. Um, but yeah, I should be uh, wrapping them up quickly. I hope by the end of the year it'll be done and then um, should be out by like March or April, hopefully. But we'll see. And let's make sure you please shill saferdean.com and tell people where to find you and uh, how to join your clubs and um, not your club, your, your courses and, uh, and hang out with, uh, with us on the, on the podcast as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. Thanks, Safe. Really appreciate it. Take care, man. Cheers, man. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Parallel paradox. Call it the doxalil. Waking up, I check the price of Bitcoin Scrolling on down through the shit coins Hot damn, I'm up 20 bands This is once again like ooh, 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 ooh. My account's at an all-time high When big bulls are make bearers die Milky bars, so the price is gonna fly away Today, today I pray Got my bags packed, do you wish you had that? Try to tell the normies they ain't listen How they sad, sad Big BTC, Lil Bro E, BRT I've been telling y'all to grab that Bought Link, I ain't even do no research Carry round bags so heavy that my knees hurt Please sir, this is for my family I've been buying daily for prosperity Okay, you got your suicide stack All in Bitcoin, I don't need no cash Fuck cock bucks, they suck I don't wanna pay stub You can keep the cash I'ma stack until that day come Lambo, moonshot I believe since day one Elon finna pump the shit Tomorrow's no need to say none If you've been on the sidelines I'm when it's my time Looping on you fast here Hold my bags and watch them decline Waking up, I check the price of Bitcoin Scrolling on down through the shit coins Hot damn, 
I'm up 20 bands, lessons once again Like ooh, 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 ooh. My count's at an all-time high When big bull tart and Paris die Milky bar, so the price is gonna fly away Today, today I pray Shout out all the homies who just stack and stack Marty Ben, Matt Odell, Mr. Swan and Max Every fellow OG on CT Loom, Dart, R&R, Loops, and Kobe If you don't know me, this is wrong Hands only have fun, staying poor If you capitulate, homie, I could never do that Hardly ever go flat Small team won't do for send it for him, I'm long with a whole stack I'm giga brain bull chat Okay, here's what happened before the IRS met I went football taught and the bad rest died It sounds tall tales, but there's no lie See, I lost all my money in the exchange hack In a boating accident that happened after that Plus I'm down a couple racks from when I bought Zcash It's okay, I'll write it off Whatever helps the tax, yeah Waking up, I check the price of Bitcoin Scrolling on down through the shit coins Hot damn, another 20 bands Blessings once again, like ooh, 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 ooh My account's at an all-time high When big bull tar make Paris die Milky bar, so the price went and flew away But that was yesterday you are listening to Captain Youth, our boy at L Captain Youth on Twitter. Thanks to Safi Dina Moose. Thanks to Daniel Prince, Sam and Lauren. And um, keep an eye out for what's coming. Peace.